Alright, I think we're ready to go on a sermon this morning. We're back in 2 Corinthians. Um, but just to start, I, I don't think that South Africa does processions and carnivals terribly well. Um, there, there's the Cape Town New Year's or Twitter Nieuwe Jaar carnival. That happens. And, and, and uh, you know... That, that, that's exciting, but, but beyond that in South Africa, there's not too many other places that do processions and carnivals. Um, it used to be that universities would have like a rag week, and at the end of that week they would get their floats down the main streets, uh, down West Street and whatever in the 1980s. I think Stephen was part of the, some of those um, uh, processions. But we, we don't seem to do that too much anymore. We do very well at toy-toying in our streets. Uh, but we don't do the processions very well. About five years ago, my family took me over to New York City. And while we were in New York, just wandering around, looking for, just looking for stuff to do, we walked past the beginnings of a street, um, uh, what do you call it, parade. Um, and we tried to ask what was going on, but they didn't speak English, had no idea what it was about, had no idea what it was on for, and off they went, went on their parade, just, just a random parade in, in, in New York City. Five years before that, we were in Mauritius, and I know it sounds like we're globetrotters, but uh, both of those trips were sponsored by other people. But uh, we were in Mauritius 10 years ago, and also just un completely unexpected, there was a massive parade through the streets of the town that we were uh, staying in. And they, they even imported people from Rio and from the Rio Carnival to be part of this carnival through the streets of this little town in Mauritius. It was super exciting to be part of it, the crowds and the excitement and the, the buzz. But we just don't seem to do that here in South Africa. Some parts of the world, it's huge. Of course, the Rio Carnival is huge. At New Orleans, uh, they used to do one, I assume they still do. Even the town that my sister lives in, a little town called Dis, which you've probably never even heard of, they have an annual carnival uh, parade through the town. Lots of cultures from the past would do parades as well. Of course, many of their parades would be a little bit more like the North Korea type of parade, a military parade. It was meant to be a, a display of might and power. Rome was particularly good at this. Uh, what would happen is that a general would win a battle or win a war. He'd arrive back at, uh, on the outskirts of Rome. He'd apply and ask for, uh, to, to, to be allowed to have a parade through the streets of Rome. And then the general would ride in in front of his legionaries and he would lead the way into the city with his legionaries marching behind. Um, uh, and, and then behind them would be all the treasure that they'd captured in their recent campaign. And behind the treasure, in chains, would come the defeated enemies. The slaves, the captured soldiers, from uh, the, the kings that they'd just conquered. And the conquered enemies would be dragged through the city. And the whole idea was that the, the city of Rome would come out and celebrate and cheer the returning heroes. Give them a hero's welcome in the city. It was meant to be a display of victory and strength. It was meant to, 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 be, to put on a, a display of, of um, uh, to intimidate, I suppose, the, the prisoners and the captured slaves. And many of those prisoners would be executed at the end of the parade. Executed either as a sacrifice to some dodgy god or goddess, or just plain execution because we want to get rid of our enemies. 
So if you've ever read Asterix and Obelix, as many of you have, then I think you'll get the picture. I think it's the story of Asterix and the Laurel Wreath, where Julius Caesar goes on parade through the city of Rome. But Asterix has managed to steal Caesar's laurel wreath that he would wear on his head. And so instead, Caesar has been replaced, the, 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 the laurel wreath has been placed, replaced with parsley. And Caesar going through the streets says, hmm, something smells fishy here. Which is one of the problems of the streets of Rome, because they were so very smelly. The sewage system didn't always work very well. And so in order to deal with the stench and the smell, the, the parade, as the parade would go through town, they would burn incense to mask the aromas of everything else that was going on. And so this sweet smell of incense would be part of the parade. That the incense was also burned as a sacrifice to their gods. And then incense from then became just a part of part of church life too. And if you go to the go through the Middle Ages, you'll find that often they would burn, well, they would always burn incense in the great cathedrals. And one of the reasons we're doing that is simply because of the mass of unwashed bodies in the cathedral, because no one bathed in the Middle Ages. It was considered bad. Uh, you didn't want to clean yourself. And so here you've got these victory parades through the streets of Rome with prisoners and treasure and, and, and might on display. And for Paul and his readers, this picture of, of, uh, of a parade would be very, very familiar. Not just victory parades through the streets of Rome, but victory parades through just about every little town in the Roman Empire. Parades where en defeated enemies are on display, Depla where, where, where defeated enemies are ridiculed. Parades where exotic Treasures are displayed, parades where generals are lauded for their bravery and where legionaries are, are welcomed as heroes. And so it would have been an image that um, Paul's readers were very, very aware of and, and, and very easy to identify with the excitement and the incense and the crowds and the cheering, the celebration. And Paul uses this image to describe how God leads his people. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter. In fact, I'm not going to read it for us this morning. But we've got Greg Bennett who's going to read it for us. So um, let's hear it from Greg this morning. Thank you, Greg. But if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but you who I have grieved? So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. But if I grieve you, who is left to make So this is the frustration of our technology and our technological issues over the last two days. That stuff works in the morning when we, when we test it, and then we come here to do it live, and it's a fail. Let's try again. There you go. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. But if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad, but you who I have grieved? I wrote to you as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment 
inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal possession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, as those sent from God. Thanks, Greg. So, to be honest, I guess this is probably not the average passage of Scripture that people would like to preach from. It's a, it's a little odd again. There's all sorts of things going on here. The first half of this chapter really is about church discipline. And I'm not sure that I want to spend a Sunday in lockdown talking about church discipline. But I think it does point to a bigger picture in this chapter. And I think part of the key to understanding what's going on in this chapter is that little mention that Paul makes halfway through the passing mention that he makes to the devil, where he says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. And so the first half of this chapter is really about the, the, the schemes of the devil and the general difficulties that we face in gospel living. The attempts by the devil to thwart the work of the church and to, to, to prevent it or to hinder the advance of the gospel. And to be honest, it's not just the devil that gets in the way of the advance of the gospel, but it's the vagaries and uncertainties of life. And we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll point that out to us in a moment, just how Paul is at, at some stages uncertain of what to do. And the vagaries of life that, that mess us around and leave us wondering what's going on around us. And so that's the first half of this chapter, right? The, the threats that we face, the, the vagaries and uncertainties of life, the, the frustrations that we deal with day to day. But then the second part of the chapter is just nice and clear, it just makes it very clear that no matter what kind of threats we face, no matter if it even looks as though we're facing defeat, God leads us in victory. So even when defeat seems inevitable, God is victorious. And so that's really going to be the two parts of the sermon this morning, those two parts of this chapter, the threats that we face and the uncertainties and vagaries of life, that the frustrations that get in the way, and the ultimate victory of God. So that's where we're going today. So, so let's just begin by going back a little bit and, and outline again what's been going on in these opening verses and what's kind of gone on in Corinth before. And I know you've heard me say this before, but let me just catch you up to speed, right? Paul had been in Corinth for about 18 months and then he left. He went to Ephesus. I'm going to have a map up later this morning and you'll be able to see exactly where we're talking about here. And while he's in Ephesus, he gets news that things have gone sour in Corinth. All the things that he left in place have started to fall apart. 
And there's two primary things that have gone wrong. There's a moral issue and there's a doctrinal issue. The moral issue that there's a guy in the church who's involved in an incestuous affair with his stepmother. That's just all kinds of dodginess right there. And the problem with this, uh, I mean, there's lots of problems with this, but one of the many problems of this is that the church was bragging about this. The church was saying, isn't it wonderful how free we are in Christ? That we're free to do whatever we want. Isn't this great? And of course, we would say, uh, no, I think you've misunderstood what freedom is all about. The second issue, the doctrinal issue, seems to revolve around a couple of guys who perhaps had been set apart as elders in the church, but had now retitled themselves, rebranded themselves as super apostles. And they were going around saying, we've had better revelation than Paul has. We've had newer revelation than Paul has. You need to listen to what we have to say. And their new revelation involved things like, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It's a spiritual resurrection. And in fact, what, what happens about those who have already died? We should baptize people on their behalf. Um, they, they were all about hyper, super bizarre spirituality that resulted in Sunday morning chaos. If you think our Sunday mornings are a little bit um, chaotic on occasion, then you, you, the Corinth had nothing on us. Um, it was mayhem. And so Paul is now sitting in, um, in Ephesus and he hears about all of this chaos. So, so he writes a letter to straighten things out. He writes 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians arrives, but it seems that the church and people in the church don't want to abide by what Paul has written. And so Paul has to then leave Ephesus and go back to Corinth just for a short visit to have a meeting with the church and the elders. And in that meeting, they discuss the issues of the church. And one of the things they need to deal with is this guy who's in with his stepmother. And the church comes to the conclusion that actually this is not right, that Christians don't live in this way. They call this guy in, they ask him to repent of his sin, and the guy just goes, Who are you to tell me how I should live? Who are you to tell me how I, what, what I can and can't do? Who are you to regulate what goes on behind closed doors? And of course, Paul and the church say to him, it's not us who's telling you what to do, it's God's clear instructions from Scripture. And the guy refuses to repent of his sin. And so the church has to take that extraordinary step of church discipline, of pushing church discipline to its, end, to its final end, and excluding this guy from the church, excommunicating him from the church. He's now cut off and no longer part of the church. It's perhaps possible that Paul and the, and the rest of the church had to do the same sort of thing to the super apostles who were preaching some very strange doctrines, calling them to repentance. And if they refuse to repent, then saying their, their authority and place in the church is no more. Now, to be clear, church, doctrine, church discipline is a thing that should be practiced. If you call yourself a Christian and if you say that you're part of the body of Christ, then, then there is a standard to live up to. But that doesn't mean that the very first step of church discipline is kick someone out of the church. That's the very last step, the very final step. When there is simply no desire to change and no desire to see any kind of repentance at all. But what happens here, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, is that there's been a change of heart. And so uh, Paul tells us, well Paul writes here to the church in Corinth and says, listen, this guy has repented. He's changed. Now, Paul had been in Corinth, he left Corinth to go back to Ephesus, he said to the church, I'll be back in his best Terminator uh, thing, right? And, and a couple of months have passed, 
and 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 for whatever reason it stopped Paul from going back to the city but Paul has heard that there has been repentance that has taken place Paul has heard that this guy whoever it was that was kicked out of the church has now come back to the church and said listen I've changed I, I've realized that what I've done was wrong and Paul says let's rejoice in that um, there's been a change of heart because discipline always has a purpose and whether it's discipline in the home or discipline at work or discipline in school or discipline in the church the purpose of discipline is always to bring about change so if you discipline your child at home and tell them to go sit in the corner um, and your child after half an hour in the corner comes to you and says uh, with tears in his eyes oh, i'm sorry i'll never do it again as a parent you should be able to say good i'm glad you've learned your lesson as a parent you shouldn't say no no go back to the corner you're just never going to be part of this family again the whole point of discipline is to change heart and so paul says right here's what's happened this guy has changed his heart he's come back to the church and said let me let me back i've changed i've given up my bad ways i i recognize my sin discipline has accomplished its purpose but here's what the church has done the church has said, no, no, you're a bad person. We've kicked you out. You can never come back. And Paul is tearing his hair out saying, no, let him back in. The whole point of discipline was to bring him back. He's repented. So can you see the, the two extremes that had caused problems in the church at Corinth? On the one side, you've got this sentimentality disguised as love. We can do as we please. And we should accept everyone, no matter their moral behavior. It's just warm fuzzies all around. And they had swung from that to the other extreme of we've gone hard and cold and we've drawn lines. And it's self-righteous indignation. And we'll cut people off because they don't match our moral standards. And so their, their, their lack of love had resulted in a legalistic, nasty, closed society. So you've got these two extremes going on in the church, these two problems. The, the one of, of sentimental love that really is nothing much at all, and hard and cold legalistic morality that lacks any kind of love and the grace of God. And in light of that, Paul says, we're not ignorant of the devil's schemes. So here's the thing, the devil is real. There are evil forces in, at work. And I don't think uh, that there's some guy in tights in a, with a pitchfork, right? The, the, the devil isn't some kind of cross-dressing farmer. But there are forces at work that would love to see nothing better than to see the church fail and the church be discredited and shut down. And there are two standard means of destroying the church on display in this passage. Sentimentality parading as love, and legalistic self-righteousness parading as morality. And either of those extremes will bring the church down. Either of those things will bring the church into ruin. Either of those will discredit the church in society. Either of those will make a real mess of gospel testimony. And Paul says, we need to embrace a high standard of morality and truth, but we also need to embrace a love that welcomes sinners. And the point is that the devil has schemes to mess up God's people. And we should not be unaware of his schemes. There is no reason at all that he should be able to outwit God's people. If this were one big game of survivor, 
then there should be no reason that it is the devil who is the one who outwits and outplays. He is the one who is ultimately outwitted. But it's not just the devil's schemes that mess with us. Paul says that he couldn't get to Corinth. He got as far as Troas. So let's have a, a map up on display. Cullum is uh, working on this to get the map going. And, and just have a look at, at where Paul was, where he'd come from, where he was trying to get to. And I think it's kind of helpful for us just to see what's going on. So, are we nearly ready, Cullum? The computer unfortunately shut down, so I'm refining it. Ah, the computer has shut down. It should be on the front screen, on the main screen. Uh, no PowerPoint. Okay. So maybe we won't have a PowerPoint. Um, so Paul is in Ephesus and he, he wants to hear from Titus. Uh, so he has made a plan to meet Titus in the town of Troas, which is just a little bit to the north of where Paul currently is. So off he goes to Troas to find Titus there, only to get there and find that Titus isn't there at all. Titus hasn't arrived. And Paul is worried. And what's interesting is that when Paul gets to Troas, he finds that um, there is an open door for gospel ministry. That's what we read. There is an open door for gospel ministry. So he arrives in Troas for gospel ministry, with an open door for gospel ministry, but he doesn't find Titus there. So, so here's where we are. This is Greece. And this is Turkey. I hope you like my stick and I hope you can see what's going on. And this right here, this little dot here is Corinth. Now you'll see what, what would happen is that sailors would have to sail all the way around to get to the other side. But if they were sharp, they could sail up this little gap here and there's a tiny little land bridge where Corinth is, is on and they could transport goods across and carry on sailing out here and so save themselves this dangerous trip all the way around. So that's where, that, that's where Paul had spent 18 months. Here's Ephesus over here. That's where Paul is, is currently enjoying life at the moment. So he probably caught a ship and crossed the ocean to get to Ephesus. This is where he's listening to or, or writing from. He's needing to find Titus. So he heads up to Troas, which is just up here. And he's expecting to find Titus in this little town of Troas right here. But Titus hasn't arrived. And as I said, it's interesting that, that Paul tells us that he's found an open door for gospel ministry in Troas. And you would expect that if there's an open door, then Paul should settle down and preach, right? After all, I'm sure you've heard, and you may have even said yourself, we're just waiting for God to open a door. And whichever door God opens, that's the door we'll go through. Well, Paul's got an open door, but instead of going through the open door, Paul says, I was so worried about what was going on, so anxious about what's happening in Corinth, and so concerned about where Titus is, I left Troas and the open door, and I went to Macedonia, which is this section over here, northern Greece. And he may have caught a boat, or he may have had to walk all the way around in the hopes of finding Titus up here somewhere. Thanks, Colin. So now you've got all the pictures in your mind. Paul in Troas finds an open door for gospel ministry, but instead of staying there and doing the gospel ministry that God has opened the door for, he leaves. And some people would say, well, maybe Paul disobeyed God. He should have stayed and done, uh, gone through the open door, right? After all, isn't that what Christians are supposed to do? We pray for open doors. Well, I just wonder sometimes if that's exactly what we're supposed to do. I think sometimes 
we're meant to um, wriggle the handle and open the door ourselves. I think sometimes maybe God gives us a key and says, here, you unlock the door. Sometimes maybe we're meant to kick the door down. And just because there's an open door doesn't mean we have to go through it. So Paul has found an open door, but he, in, 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 a, in a need to go and find Titus and in anxiety about what's going on in Corinth, crosses the ocean and heads to Macedonia. I think what I like about this, just that one little verse, is that it shows something of the humanity of Paul. Here's Paul, anxious, uncertain, a little confused, not quite sure where to go next. The kind of, I think the point that it makes is that not everything always goes the way we want it to. Not everything always turns out the way we want it to. There are always things that are going to frustrate us from time to time. Just like I was deeply frustrated yesterday at technology's inability to work for me, or perhaps my inability to get technology to work. I don't know which. But there are always things in life that are going to get in the way of the things that we want to do, the things we need to do, the things that we love to do. There are always going to be worries that press down on us. There are going to be times when we do, like Paul, run around like a headless chicken because we're filled with anxiety and not quite sure where to go and what to do next. There's an open door here. Should we go through it? Should we stay where we are? Should we find another door to try out? What about other opportunities out there? There's confusion all the time of what to do and where to go. And I love that this just presents Paul and displays Paul, not as this super confident, always got it together, never got it wrong, super apostle. It sets him out as confused and unsure. It sets him out as anxious and concerned, making plans and decisions and hoping for the best. This is not Paul announcing like some politicians do, that I'm 100%, I never get anything wrong, I'm always thumbs up, no one could ever do anything better than I do it. It presents Paul as this guy who's just trying to figure it out, just trying to do his best. Here's my point. Whether we're under attack by the schemes that the devil plays and playing another guy, game of survivor trying to outwit and outlast, or whether we're witless running around, unsure of what to do and where to go next, there's something hopeful to look forward to. Because you today might be feeling under threat. You today might be feeling a little bit directionless and unsure. You today might not be quite so certain about what doors have opened and what doors have closed. We're in lockdown at the moment, lockdown's level four, and while some doors have been nudged ajar, many doors are still locked and closed. And we're just, a lot of us are just not sure where to go. A lot of us are filled with anxiety. Some of us are just not sure what to do next. Some of us are, are facing those schemes of the devil, and some of us have gone all hard and cold and legalistic and self-righteous, and other of us are all squishy and, and soft and sentimental. And wherever it is that we find ourselves in, and whatever schemes and anxieties have come our way, Paul has this great moment of change halfway through the chapter, where he uses that wonderful little English word, but. But. So we've got the devil's schemes, we've got churches in chaos, we've got Paul's uncertainty, but God. And in your life, 
We've got the devil's schemes, and we've got your family chaos, and we've got your own personal disaster, and we've got your bad decisions, and there's threats to the kingdom of God, and there's threats that have been brought out by your bad decisions, and your poor behavior, and, and the poor decisions of the church that you're a part of, and the threats have been brought on by the schemes of the devil, and the threats that are brought on by our anxieties, and by our fears, and by our uncertainties, but God. And all those fears and anxieties and uncertainties and schemes, can any of them bring the kingdom of God to its knees? Can the kingdom of God come to an end by our doubts and by our uncertainties? Will our fears and, and the threats that we face bring down the kingdom of God? Will the vastness of your anxiety prove to be the final straw that breaks God's back? But God. In fact, Paul says, but thanks be to God. It's like, if the kingdom of God were dependent on Paul, it would be disaster. If the kingdom of God is dependent on me or on you, it would have collapsed a long time ago. We'd have been outwitted and outplayed. But thank goodness it's not dependent on you or me or Paul. Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession. Here's the thing, right? Our poor choices, our bad decisions, the devil's schemes will not stop God's victory parade. And just to be clear, it's not Paul's victory parade. Paul is not the one who's leading this parade as an all-conquering general. Paul is not going, hey, we can do this. We can build a bigger and better church if you just follow me. If you just follow me, you can live your best life now. Paul is not doing that. God is the one who is leading the parade. We, along with Paul and Titus and that messed up church in Corinth, we're just the foot soldiers. We're just the legionaries. We're just following our great general who leads us from one victory to another. And so can you see the hope in that? That even when our decisions leave us wondering and our churches leave us guessing, and the devil's schemes seem just a little bit better thought out than usual this week, our God will lead us into victory. Now, we need to be careful here, because there does end up being a very funny triumphalism that ends up taking place within Western Christianity. Triumphalism is this idea of constant strength, never weak, Always winning, always the winners. It resulted in the 1980s with the, in, in the United States with a group called the Moral Majority. We can, we can change society by the strength of our will. We can transform the morals of our society by legislation. If we can just get enough Christians into power, we can legislate the kingdom of God into existence. It kind of sometimes reveals itself in this whole idea that, uh, you know, if we could just have a Christian president, everything would be wonderful. Well, I know a lot of Christians. And forgive me for those of you Christians out there this morning. I don't think there's too many of us that I would trust as president of our country. Just because you're a Christian doesn't necessarily make you a great president. And yet there's this strange idea of Christian triumphalism. That we can always be winners. That's not what Paul is pointing to here. What Paul is suggesting is, is that he, he, 
he's not suggesting that you're always this triumphant superhero, but rather, even in those moments of your weakness and your apparent defeat and your anxiety and your uncertainty, God leads us in his triumph. So what this means is, is not that you're, you're always on the up, that you're never on the losing side, that your team always wins. No, it doesn't mean that. What it mean, because sadly, there are times when the church is outwitted. And there are times when the church does appear to have been outplayed. There are times when we are confused and lost and anxious. But those moments are never total defeats for us. Those moments for the believer never signify the end. You know, the Allies lost a few battles after D-Day in 1944. But the outcome was always assured. There was always going to be a victory parade in Paris. Our victory is assured. Does that mean you'll never have to pay the fine? Does that mean your business will boom in three weeks' time? Does that mean that you'll never be sick again? No to all of those. That's triumphalism. And it's not the triumphalism we're talking about here. Because here's what triumphs. The kingdom of God. His kingdom will expand. Despite the setbacks experienced by his people, the kingdom will grow from strength to strength. His kingdom advances. And even in the moments and in the places where it looks as though the, the kingdom of God is in retreat, God leads us into victory. I said last week that his plans and his purposes will prevail. His kingdom will come. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks about how uh, God not only leads us in triumph, but he leads his enemies bound behind him in triumph. Our enemies. It is God who is the conqueror. It is he who has made a conquest over sin and Satan and death. And so ministry is triumph because Christ is king. Now here's the thing. You and I play a role in this kingdom. Because what Paul goes on to say is, through us the fragrance of his knowledge spreads. So Paul starts to mix his metaphors here a little bit. But just like the incense on those old army parades announced the victory and announced sacrifice to the gods, so our lives are offered in sacrifice to him, and we are the aroma of God to all people. Do you know that you smell? I know that some of you are taking a, just a careful whiff now just to see, did you put deodorant on this morning? Um, but we all bear an aroma. When you enter a room, you bring an aroma with you. Some of you enter the room and bring with you the aroma, the scent of fresh cut flowers. Some of you enter the room and bring with you the aroma of something that you just stood in outside in the garden. Whatever it is, we all bring an aroma with us. And when we leave the room, our aroma lingers. What is the aroma that you leave lingering? Because we either leave the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ or the off-putting scent of spiritual decay. When you enter the room, is it the aroma of Christ that comes with you? Do, do you bring with you hope and joy and delight and life and love? 
Or do you come with the noxious scent of the local Shangweni dump? Do you bring with you the scent of death and decay, of gossip and condemnation and self-righteousness? Because that kind of aroma lingers too. And Paul says that we are to some the aroma of life and to others the aroma of death. In those parades when the incense was burnt, for the soldiers, for the crowds who celebrated, it was the, the, the incense was the scent of their victory. It declared we've won. It, it was the scent of life. But for the prisoners coming along at the back, the, the, that smell of aroma signaled their defeat. And it pointed to their soon coming execution. And part of what Paul is saying in this is that the gospel is just the gospel. The gospel doesn't change. But different people respond to the gospel in different ways. Just as some people get a whiff of coffee and go, oh, that's just so wonderful. And others get a whiff of coffee and feel a little nauseous and ill because it's too rich. Or perhaps how some people catch that aroma of bacon and just begin to salivate. And if you're a vegetarian, you want to throw up. The gospel is just the gospel. It's how different people respond to it. And some will will heed the gospel and rejoice because the gospel brings, brings life, and others will reject the gospel and remain in their chains and remain lost and in the dark. Now here's where, where Paul kind of finishes, where he says some people want to do everything or try and do everything to make everyone love the aroma of the gospel. And so they'll cheapen the gospel in, in order to soft sell it. And Paul talks about peddlers of the gospel, of let's cheapen the gospel in the hopes that lots of people will like the aroma. And so they'll be saying, oh, you, you don't like the smell of, of bacon? That's fine, we'll cover it in maple syrup. You'll like that, don't you? You don't like the aroma of Brussels sprouts? Not to worry, we'll add bacon bits and cover it in cheese sauce. You'll never know that there's Brussels sprouts in there. I, I've never tried it myself, but I believe that if there's enough cheese sauce and enough bacon bits, you could probably get away with eating some Brussels sprouts. But Paul says that's not what we're going to do. We're not trying to mask the gospel or hide the gospel. We're not going to cheapen the gospel in order to sell the gospel and make some money out of it. He says the gospel has a distinctive aroma, and some will respond by faith and find life. And others will reject the gospel and say no thanks. I need to finish up this morning. One of the nice things about preaching to a camera is I can't see whether you've fallen asleep or not. I can't see how many of you are yawning yet. So I could go on and on and on. But I'm going to finish it up and wrap it up here. Because here's the thing, right? Our, our, our cross-dressing farmer launches attacks against God's people and against his kingdom. And he will do what he can to sow provision and promote sentimental, superficial uh, love or, or pharisaical self-righteousness, all in an attempt to weaken us and to bring down the church. At the same time, you and I are going to face the anxieties and fears and worries of life. Not just the things that are gospel related, but just life in general that will get us down. The things that just irritate us. And some of us are, like I said, anxious about the future and unsure of what holds. Many of us are worried about what will come in the next month and in the next year. We're distracted by all sorts of things in life. The threat is real. And the fear is that what will happen? Will we fall apart? Will the kingdom of God collapse? Will we lose everything? But our confidence this morning is in this. That He always leads us in His triumph. We're always part of the triumphal 
process or procession of Christ and His kingdom as His kingdom advances. And so He overcomes our fears because He has outwitted, He has outplayed, He has outlasted our enemy. He is the great survivor. And He soothes our anxieties because His kingdom comes. And so Paul finishes by saying, who is equal to this task? Who, who is up for this? Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is no one. None of us are. None of us on our own, can, none of us can certainly lead the triumphal procession. None of us can overcome our anxieties and fears by just trying harder. None of us can outwit the devil, our enemy. But his grace is sufficient. He is enough. He will always lead us in triumph over his enemies. And the only question to ask is this, what lingering aroma do you leave in your room? Let's pray. And so Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your grace that is sufficient for all things. Your grace that is sufficient to help us overcome our fears, our uncertainties, our worries. Your grace that is sufficient to lead us into victory to bring about the end and the defeat of our enemies, that we may not be outwitted by his schemes. Lord, may we rest firm and strong and steadfast in you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Technology is just fantastic. I can't reach the finish button.